0: This is the podcast of Theophilus Church. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com.
1: We're going to be reading from Revelation tonight, so get ready. Chapter 21, verse 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. This is when the people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is the word of the Lord. I haven't done this yet. All right, we're going to read the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead.
0: You may be seated. <clears throat> For several weeks now, we have uh, ex- we have gone through piece by piece that creed that we just said, and we're going to continue to say it together as a community, as our story unfolds together. But tonight is the last night of this series that we've uh, been on throughout the summer and the fall, and so we have finally arrived at the last phrase, life everlasting, amen. Um, and that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. And in honesty, like, if we, I mean, we are, we, we are a Pentecostal church, we come from a Pentecostal background, and honestly, what I should be doing right now is I should have instructed Jason to just drop the mic and walk off the stage, and we could all just went downstairs and had some dinner, because... Jason, Jason, thank you for that word that just kind of cuts right to the heart of the theme of what we are celebrating tonight, is the fact that you and I individually and community and communally as the body of Christ have had an experience with Jesus that invites us into this story of eternity. An eternal relationship with Jesus has been inaugurated Because of the sacrifice that he did, the resurrection that he brought to us, and from here until forevermore, we get to celebrate in that, and we're going to unpack that a little bit more, um, for better or for worse, because I think Jason captured it pretty perfectly. As a little boy, I remember laying on my bed at night, and for whatever reason— I was haunted by the concept of eternity more than anything else. Did anybody ever have that experience as a kid? It wasn't that I was haunted by even an eternity of, of torment or of bliss or whatever eternity would behold. It was eternity itself that scared the heck out of me. I remember laying on, bed, on my bed... And I would think, okay, when's it going to end? It's never going to end. But when's it going to end? It's never going to end. And that would take me down this. Every time I would ask the question, the pit in my stomach would get deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And as a young boy, I could not conceptualize anything that did not have an end. And still, if I give myself to the mental exercise, it leads to this mysterious space that can be, let's just say, creepy. And as I reflect on that a little bit more, I came to realize, I think, this week that myself personally, some of you probably will identify with this, is, there's a certain, certain element of like a Stockholm syndrome that we have with death. Death carries a promise that even though we're all scared of it to some degree or another, it, it carries a certain promise with it that is, can be sort of comforting. It's, it brings finality to something. It brings some, some sort of a closure um, even though it torments us or it's the point of most despair, it's, there, there is this comforting element um, to something, to, to death in my experience. And so I, I turn to it as this kind of this safety net and I sort of get lost or thrown into this mental chaos when the statement Christ has defeated death gets interjected, I don't fully know what to do with that. I think a lot of it has to do with how I experience time. And I know I've talked about time a lot. i talked about, I don't know, I have this obsession with time right now. I don't know why, I don't really understand it. But anyways, let me walk through as a little boy, I think, what is throwing me into this torment. I view time as, some, as a line segment, Right? And you with me? Like it starts at a definite point in history. Whether or not we want to try and date that point or whatever, we all acknowledge that there was a point in which all of this came to be. It was created in this definitive point. And then that starts the physical space in existence, Mark's history, or this point in time that we can measure. And now it goes on in one direction and it, to the christian claim on for eternity it never it never ends right i live or we exist as humans as a little blot on this line of eternity so we can look back towards the past and we know that that has an end to it or it has a beginning piece to it and then if we look in the other direction toward the future we make this claim that that never ends. It just keeps going on and on and on. So no matter where we exist on that line, whether we were Adam and Eve, like the first people on the line, or if we are here 2,000 years after Christ, or we exist way further down the line, one thing remains overwhelmingly true. Our present experience and the experiences of the past pales in comparison to the grandeur of the end, of the future. So we drive down the freeway going down to Salem and we encounter a massive sign that reminds us of this reality every time we drive. What does it say? When you die, where are you going? Heaven or hell? Choose one. Because ultimately, a lot of us were raised to believe, ultimately, when you boil it down to the grand narrative of life that is eternal, this little blip on the radar, it doesn't matter. What really matters is everlasting life. How many of you have ever done one of those weird escape room things? Just gone to an escape room. Okay, so I am terrible at escape rooms. I've done two, and I am utterly convinced if I didn't have a community of people with me to solve the puzzles or whatever to get out of this escape room, I would stand there like, Looking at the wall uh, and the guys in the background who are watching you do this thing would be like that guy is an idiot. I would not get anything. What these escape rooms are, for those of you who don't know, is you can go. They're all around town now. Um, they set up a room and it has a theme. Some of them are creepy. Some of them are funny, and and but every single room is a giant puzzle. And you and a group of friends, your task is to go into this room and to look for clues and put together these clues that will ultimately, at the end, lead to you escaping the room, if you do it all right, in the right order, in the right amount of time. You have, everybody who enters these rooms, has a certain framework of time that they are allotted to get out of this Get out of this room. Some people who are smart do it really, really fast and set records in time rooms. Some who are in groups of mine are really, really slow, and chances are you're never going to get out of the room, right? I think that we conceive of our time on earth (laughs) in the Christian community oftentimes as being stuck in an escape room. We look at this life as this sort of cosmic game that God has set up. And he put us all into this room, and at the end of the day, the only thing that really matters is whether or not you can solve the puzzle. You have to get the right answers, say the right things, and if you do it, then you get a ticket that gets you, it unlocks a door, and you can get out. The thing is, you don't actually know whether or not you solved the puzzle until the time has fully expired. Then you will realize whether or not you solved the puzzle. So some of us were lucky enough, our parents did the puzzle before us. And so we entered into this world and they said, push this button, put those things together, do this, it unlocks the door and you're set free. You're out of the room. And once we're out of the room now, we only have one task. And that task is to help the other poor souls who are stuck in the room to figure out the puzzle, to put all the pieces together, so that they too can be like us and escape the room. The problem is... There's only once the, the, the puzzle is solved, once we've figured out the right answers and we've figured it all out, it leads us to two places. Either we get frustrated and annoyed with the people who are still hacking around in there and can't quite figure it out and won't listen to our instructions, or we simply just get bored. I solved the puzzle. I got the answers right, the end's going to be good for me, get on with it Jesus, come on clock, tick down, let's get over so we can get on to what truly matters, something that lies distant in the future, the lion segment that continues to go on and on and on into eternity. I have some good news. That is not the good news. That is not the gospel. You see, that type of thinking, which is deeply ingrained in how I have embraced, and honestly, it's in that line of thinking that I actually came to relationship in Christ. So I'm not saying that there's not power in this to, for people to actually be drawn into authentic relationship in, with Christ. But the problem is, is, it's more Gnostic than it is... Christian. Let me unpack that a little bit. Gnosticism was one of the earliest heresies of the church that the church was fighting against, and it had this idea that you have the physical world, which is evil, contaminated, and the spiritual world, which is good and holy. The only thing that actually lives on is the spiritual realm. So the goal of life is to escape the physical, to hold on to the spiritual, and that is where true life is to be held, so as Christians, we, we look for the destruction of this horrible, awful, no good physical space with which we occupy. And we look in, with anticipation towards this utopian ideal, this life that is to come. And I think in the process, we miss a cornerstone a key element to the gospel message that has every bit of relevance for right now, right here, today. And Jason named it. Jesus Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, the God who is the beginning and is the end, entered into history conquered death through his resurrection, and invites us into real-time, real-life, eternal relationship with him and the rest of his created order that he loves so unbelievably deeply. We read a portion of the scripture in Revelation 21 that's actually a chapter and a half. It's the very end. Revelation 22 is the last chapter in the Bible. And it talks about the the Christian hope, the anticipation of what is to come in the ultimate end. And it's this picture of a new Jerusalem and of Eden being restored. And I want to capture our imaginations with this image that John is painting. He says well, the very first part needs a little bit of explanation because it's frustrating to me. It's he, This new Jerusalem is coming down into heaven clothed in like this, this bridegroom, this, this, what do you call that? Dress things that brides wear, you know? And coming down to earth, and John says, and the sea was no more, right? There was no more sea. Well, I'm like, all right, come on, time out, Right? This is where our interpretations get all funky and weird, right? Where, see, in eternity, there's going to be no more sea. Well, that's deeply problematic for bros like me, who I would really like to spend eternity on my surfboard. I mean, (laughs) and so if there is no sea, does that mean there's not going to be any ocean, right? So what happens? Is there going to be a dam at the Strait of Gibraltar, and so just the Mediterranean Sea is going to dry up? This is where some of our, our... creative interpretive thinking takes us down this trail. Let's take a step back and let's enter into the imagery that John is trying to create, to enter into the story of eternal life that God has given to us and is going to give to us. The sea in ancient Jewish culture represented death and despair, not to mention the fact that John was writing his letter on the island of Patmos, separated from his church by a sea of death. In his image of the new Jerusalem, this thing of death that contains death in the cultural mind that separates him from the church, dries up and there's no more division. There's no more death. In all of its beauty, this new Jerusalem settles in on earth And then in chapter 22, we see that the walls of the city are still intact. Three giant gates on every corner. But it says Christ is in the center and there's no more need for a sun because his glory shines and lights up the whole place. Therefore, the gates at all times can be opened. They never close. People from every tribe, tongue, nations, kings, peasants, everyone coming in and out of the city. There's a river of life flowing down the center of the city with the trees of life planted on every side. Plenty of water for everyone to drink without sale. Plenty of food for everyone to eat without exploitation. The walls are adorned with every precious jewel Kings, queens, you and I walk upon the jewels without exploiting them, but honoring them for the beauty that they have. Creation is working in unity, in harmony. Humanity is not battling for position because in the kingdom of God, there is no position. The king of the universe is on his throne and he lights it all up and we all gather around him. He is the focal point. That is the hope. That's eternity. That is our eternal reality. And if that is boredom, then my goodness, I don't know what excites you. But we have to live in the tension between okay, yes, this is great. That's eternity. That sounds wonderful. But that's not the here. That's not the now. So how do we be a people that live in the tension between the fact that Christ has already come, Christ has already set you free, Christ has already put that spirit within you, and yet we live in a world that does not operate with that balance and with that rhythm and with that harmony. How do we exist in the tension of that space. In one of Paul's most famous uh, chapters in the Bible, it comes in 1 Corinthians 13, it's called the love chapter. And he's addressing a church that is bent on division, bent on tearing each other apart over controversies, over faith controversies, theology controversies, practical controversies that are happening within the church. And there's a really famous line at the end where he, he talks about all the ways that love is. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, is isn't proud, rude, self-seeking, all of these things. He unpacks love in this beautiful thing. And then at the very end, he says, now church, three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these Is love. What was Paul doing? Was he saying, okay, these three things are important, but if you have to choose between one of them, choose love. Or these three things are important, but if we were to order them in the area of importance, choose love. I think what Paul is saying is he's saying, guys, these three things are paramount to our existence. As the community of Christ, we look back to the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And we anchor in, it anchors us. It is this faith, we look back and we place our faith in a person in a real, who entered history in a real point in time. And we anchor ourselves into that person in faith, even though we didn't experience him in the actual flesh and blood. Sorry, this is kind of like a repelling, belaying metaphor. And so, Bryce, you're going to take this a little bit differently than the rest of us. But, um, <laughs> so I apologize for that. Ask Bryce later if you want to. Um, <clears throat> you anchor into, into this faith, and we look toward the future in hope, which is that image that I just created, right? It's this, we are anchored in faith we believe that the Christ who has gone before us is also the Christ who has who predestined or promised our eternal future. And we are going towards that in faith. Faith anchors us. Hope keeps us moving forward. And what is the movement of going from there to there? It is love. As we are going forward forward, Toward that future, anchored in faith, propelled toward hope, we become a people of love. So Paul is saying, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But church, you live in a real time, in a real place, in a physical space. Your task in that space is love. That is how you live eternity. That is how you live eternity. And that is why the church is to be a community defined by love. Yes, Rob Bell did get it right. Love does win. I don't know why it's controversial. <clears throat> it does win. How do we do this, though? My goodness, man, I did not expect to get all, like, fired up <laughs> about this. Oh, my god. Oh. Okay. What are some tangible things that we can do to move us in that direction of love? One of the greatest scholars, I'm just going to give a couple application points and then we'll get out and we'll eat some food and fellowship together. Abraham Joshua Heschel was a 20th century Jewish scholar. Um, who was absolutely brilliant. And he wrote a lot on Sabbath. He wrote a lot about other things, a lot of things, but one of his books that he wrote was on Sabbath. He makes some remarkable observations on what Sabbath was and is to the Jewish community. And and it's pretty profound on how The lack of practice of Sabbath really robs us of the ability to live into this Christ community, I think, that we are called to be. He describes how our current condition is filled with the toil, right? Time and space are interrelated with one another. We can't have one without the other. And our human condition is trying to... One thing that we can have control over is we can have control over the spaces that we occupy. Space is actually proprietary. Andy is sitting in that space. Nobody else in this time in history can sit in that exact space because Andy occupies it. Space we can control. We can exchange our time... To seize control of space, to buy goods that make us happy, to build houses that make us feel safe. We can control our environments and our space by giving up our time. And it can lead us into this insatiable, um, non, just a, a perpetual existence where we're always striving to take control of space. Sabbath, according to Heschel, is that moment, that rhythm in our lives where we reorient ourselves to what actually is. That there exists something in the value of time where you can't exploit it, it's not proprietary. This is one of the most profound observations I think he made. Is there is one thing that the most powerful human on the planet cannot control is time. You always have to share it. Always. Time is never proprietary. You can try and rob somebody of their time by enslaving them, but really you're just robbing them of their place. Time is eternal. It belongs to the Lord. And when we put ourselves in a moment of pause and we say, God, time is yours. You are at the center of the universe. Meaning and relationship and beauty is really what matters. And now the rest of my work week works to serve that end. Sabbath is the beginning, not the end of our week. And yet we have this belief that at the end of the day, what really matters is the name that we can make for ourselves, or the work that we can do or the houses that we can build or the clothes that we can buy or the cars that we can drive. And so we toil and we toil and we toil and that's the point of life. And then when we do take a rest, it's just so that we can toil and that we can toil and we can toil and then toil and toil and toil some more we would do well to be a community that was defined by what truly matters and truly exists, the God of the universe who charges us to look at, to see the world of beauty and to be relationally bound to one another as what is really meaningful in this life. And our necessary toil serves that end, not the other way around. And then the, la- the second... And the last um, is more practical, and I actually hesitate to um, it's it's practical for this community. We are a small and insignificant and very beautiful Christ community here in southeast Portland I was this week I was on a little bit of I was on a hike preparing this sermon and I was walking out by this place where all these birds were flying around, and uh, there was old people walking and looking at birds. There was two types of people, old people looking at birds with binoculars and their cameras, and there was young people with their headphones on and running. There was no in-between. I was that weird in-between space, like the the guy who sort of has gray hairs, but I'm definitely not old. And I, I d- hey, <laughs> um, anyways, <laughs> so this guy, this guy was, I saw off in the tree, this, like, you couldn't really see it. You could just see a form. It was like an animal in the tree. And I asked a guy with binoculars, I said, hey, what is that? What is that thing out there? And he goes, it's a heron in a tree. And I go, oh, that's cool. And he looks at me and he goes, yeah, it is cool. <laughs> and you're here to experience it. And I walked away and I'm like, okay. Like. <laughs> but this image of a heron in a tree and this guy going like, yeah, you are here to experience it captures to me what Theophilus is. We are a heron in a tree. It's like this thing, you talk about Theophilus and you're like, yeah, this really quirky bunch of people sitting in a tree, way off over there. In the grand scheme of life, how significant is this space? Well, we're a heron in a tree. But... We are also a heron in a tree, which is something beautiful, something worthy of stopping and looking at, something worthy of turning to your neighbor and saying, that's cool, and you're here to experience it. You are that heron in that tree, so beautiful, so small, all at the same time. Something that is so profound about the eternal kingdom of God is the fact that those doors are always stinking open. People from all colors, all languages, all tribes, all tongues, all everything is going to walk through those doors, and in all of our quirkiness, we are going to revolve around that Christ at the center for all of eternity, and it's going to be stinking amazing. And we, you and I, as this heron in a tree in southeast Portland, have the opportunity to model ourselves as we anchor ourselves in faith and look toward hope to live in love, that model, right here, right now. And yet so much, I think, I don't know if it's... uh, There is a cultural thing, I think, and I don't know what it is, in our time and place that kind of looks at the church as this, like, eh, it's this thing, it's cool people I I get together with when I'm nothing else better to do, and I'm kind of like, yeah, take it or leave it type of a thing, come or go. And eternity or living the Christian life is never about, I can't do it alone. That's the thing. I can't live in eternity alone. You can't live in eternity alone. You won't live in eternity alone. The true expression of love is us living in relationship with has all of the corks and the that relationship brings with it the conflicts, the disagreements, the different outlooks on life, and we bring all of those things to the table in service of our God together so that we can be that community of love that is pursuing the hope set before us. And yet we have to do it as a community that is committed to one another and committed to grow in relationship with one another. That's the only way in which living the kingdom of God forward works. So if you are wondering if you mean something to this community, (laughs) you do. You are so beautiful and important to the kingdom of God. Does that mean that everybody needs to land in this community? Absolutely not. But every single week, when we come to this table, it's not just this vain ritualism that we come and we take this bread and we go into our own isolated corner to do this me and Jesus thing alone. We are identifying with a bigger body that has gone throughout time and throughout space that orients ourselves on the thing that is at the center of the universe. We partake in it. We fuel ourselves with the love of Christ and we go forward together in one accord, into our communities. I have lots of hopes and dreams for this immediate community, including seeing asylum seekers and refugees and immigrants housed in our homes and fed at our tables as a community. For people who are sexually marginalized and things that they would feel safe to have conversations in this space. For this to reflect the multi-ethnic and the multi-generationalism that will be present at the kingdom of God. I long to see that happen. And it will only happen among us if we are in relationship with one another and first model that kingdom to come with one another. That's what it means, I think, to be the Christ community. And I say that because I say that these can be challenging at times to talk about because what I don't want you to hear is you need to come to Theophilus' program and listen to my teachings and all that. Anchor ourselves in the Christ community that you belong in. Throw yourself into that And charge it to model the kingdom of God that has already come and will be for all of eternity. I think that's what it means to believe in life everlasting and to be a people of life everlasting. All right. I love you all so much. I love this community. I love being part of it. I'm so excited to see what God is going to do. I say this with repetition, but it's true. I think God has really good things in store for the future. Let's pray, and then we're going to come to the Lord's table. All are welcome. There's gluten-free elements here, also in the back. If you're serving communion and you're leading worship, you can come up at this time. God, you are so good. It's so good to be uh to be yours to be um to be a part of the story where god you're you are making all things new and you're using us to do it right here right now, even though it won't be fulfilled just yet God, I pray for this immediate community that um, in a very real real way that we can experience your true presence among us and become a people um, who reflects the goodness of your love not only to one another but to the people around us become a community who is marked by that you are a good God we love you Thank you for the sacrifice, your death, and also your resurrection that we get to partake in every single week. We take it for granted. Teach us not to. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Theophilus Church. We hope you've been inspired and challenged by what you've heard. For more information, visit our website at TheophilusChurch.com.